0: Welcome. I'm Mike guest and I'm your host, and this is episode number 86. It's March 21st, 2021, and today we're going to talk about an experience I had earlier this week and some of the thoughts that that experience sparked. Now, as I am wont to do, I was perusing YouTube, and the algorithm was doing its best to get me to click. And it served up a video uh, that I thought was really fascinating, <laughs> it, it sparked a lot of thought. This week, the video, Bag Boy, that's the name of the video. It's called Bag Boy. Now, I'll link to this video. In fact, I'll embed it if I can. Just go to my website, MikeGaston.com forward slash thecurrency086. MikeGaston.com forward slash thecurrency086. I'll embed it in the show notes. You can check it out there. It's 22 minutes long. You don't need to watch the whole thing. You you just really need to watch the first few minutes to understand exactly what I'm talking about. You can watch the whole thing. It's funny. It's worth your time, I guess, if you want to have a good laugh. Uh, but this is a John C. Riley production. You guys know John C. Riley. He is he's kind of an interesting guy. I like Riley. I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. He he's he's a comedian, an actor. He's a writer, producer. He's done a lot of different things. I mean, he, he was in Boogie Nights. Uh, he was in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Uh, he was in The Thin Red Line, uh, Magnolia, great movie. Uh, he was in Gangs of New York. I mean, this guy's been in a lot of different movies, The Aviator. And one that you'll know, uh, Talladega Nights. He was in Tal- Talladega Nights with his buddy Will Ferrell. So, I mean, he's just been in a lot of stuff. And, I mean, I, I want to say, like, the most latest stuff. Um, he was in Holmes and Watson, actually, 2018. So, I mean, he's been in a lot of different movies. A very active guy. He he, uh, he often is more of, like, a supporting role, um, supporting actor. And he plays different kinds. I mean, sometimes he's got serious roles. Sometimes he's got comedic roles. I mean, he's got some range. I, just a very impressive guy. So if you know John C. Riley, that, that's him. You've seen him in different movies. He, he's got this character that he's created that, he's, that he does a lot of Internet videos. I don't know if these show up in other places, uh, maybe like Adult Swim or something. I'm not sure. But he has this character called Steve Brule. And Steve Brule does different stuff. He'll do interviews. Uh, Sometimes he does like PM magazine style or entertainment style, like reviews. Like, hey, we're here at this restaurant, you know, that's well known for its seafood, and and there'll be a bitter shtick. He he does situational comedies, just different stuff. And the Steve Brule, the character is kind of like really frizzy-haired nerd with thick glasses very awkward, uh, guy. He set he's, he's, he says things, he pronounces words incorrectly. He's, he's a very physically awkward. His manners, mannerisms are a little clunky and strange. Um, if you watch a Steve Brule interview with a celebrity, you know, it's very awkward in, in the vein of between two ferns with, uh, as a Zach Galifianakis, Phanakis, um, But Brule, this like really goofy character. So this movie, I'll say movie, it's really a show, this 22-minute kind of pseudo-sitcom. And I call it a pseudo-sitcom because the shtick is this is part of a series. It's like a a throwback. It's like an 80s set in the early 80s, late 70s uh, sitcom set in a supermarket back in the day. And Steve Brule plays this bag boy. But they've got it set up that it's like this TV show. So the intro you know, introduces all the characters to the opening music, the credits, and it's very cliche. It picks up on all the tropes of, of the good old days of, uh, of sitcoms in the, in the seventies and eighties. And then it goes through a situational comedy, that episode, there's some situation and it's comedic. And of course there's this ongoing, you know, Steve Brule is the bag boy. He's in love with, uh, the the cute checkout girl, then of course there's a there's a rival, there's a young guy who's you know, relatively good looking, I guess, who also works at the store, but he's the stud, the confident stud, and it's just a cast of characters. You know, there's like this uh a security guard who's old, old guy, just asleep at the door with a pistol in his pocket, you know, in his in his holster at his side. Lots of cliches, and it's a funny shtick. So I'm watching this thing. It's the Elgo s- serves it up. I'm like, okay, YouTube, good call. Rare, but good call. I'll click on this. It'll be a nice respite from the uh, the Russian like a boss videos where I watch like motorcycles slip through between two tractor trailers at 100 miles an hour. I'm watching this thing and immediately I'm hooked. It's funny. It's on point. It's, it's nailing all the things that just bring me back as a Gen Xer to my childhood watching television. It's really doing a great job. The, you know, the dialogue is stilted. The whole situation that the comedy is wrapped around this episode is, is ridiculous. And, and I'm just laughing. Like it, it it's, it hits all the right notes and I'm laughing and that's exactly it. It just hits all the right notes. I don't even think about it. I'm just, I'm in. They got me. Well, about five, maybe seven minutes in, I'm asking myself, well, hang on a minute. Like, I'm just reacting. Like, the minute this thing started, I'm, I've got a grin from ear to ear. This is funny to me. And I just thought, like, why is this funny to me? Like, what's happened so far that's funny? Like, what about this is funny? Is this thing even funny? Now, I'm not having an existential crisis. You're like, Mike, this is just <laughs> it's just a silly thing. Like, enjoy it. Why are you why are you like why are you breaking the fourth wall here? Like what is just enjoy it. But as I'm watching it, I, I can't help but ask, like, why is this funny to me? And then this the follow up question is, is it even funny? So there's the why am I reacting the way I am? And then I'm asking the kind of deeper question or the broader question, I don't know, both. Like, is this even funny? Is this even good humor? Like am I? And I was the kind of the the thought behind the thought for me was, am I so conditioned by this that I just react without thinking? Now, don't worry, I'm not going to sit and deconstruct John C. Riley's work. I'm not here to criticize his Steve Brule character. He does it's good. Like this isn't it? Just asked, It just made me ask the question. It's like if you had a kind of food in front of you and you didn't think twice, you're just like, I'm in bar. You know, you're just gonna put your head in that bag of chips and start eating. No one's gonna argue that chips don't taste good. There's something about that, those carbohydrates, that oil and that salt, it just it just got you. Like potato chips, you can't just eat one. We all know this. No one's gonna argue that it's hard to only eat one chip. I, I'm sure there are people out there like, I just don't like potato chips. I think they're gross. Th- there's always that guy or gale out there. Those people exist. But the average person is going to, yeah, chips are, uh, I got to stay away. They're just, they're terrible. I know they're not good for me, but I can't stop. Once I start, I can't stop. And I think this, I was kind of having that moment. It wasn't that I was saying, this is terrible, by the way, that that analogy breaks down. I was just saying like, why do I love this so much? You know, if you never sit and ask yourself when it comes to potato chips, like, what is it about potato chips? We go, oh, it's the... It's the combination of the salt and the oil and, oh, okay, now I understand it. So I'm watching this thing. It's hitting all the right notes. I'm laughing. And then I just pull up short. I'm like, hold on. What, why am I thinking this funny? And is it even funny? I'm not qualified to judge if this thing is funny or not. Meaning I don't have a PhD in, in pop humor, pop culture human emotion, et cetera. So I don't know. I, I think humor is pretty subjective. If you're watching something and you're laughing, then it's funny to you. It's obviously struck a chord. And that's what I came to. I realized, okay, th- this is funny to me. Humor is subjective. The humor that, that like if somebody came from another country or another culture they, and they, in, a, in a different era, they didn't see this. They don't know the whole late 70s, early 80s supermarket Aesthetic. They don't know the whole American situational comedy uh, aesthetic trope cliches. They look at this and go, I don't get it. I don't, this isn't funny to me. So there, there is an element of humor that is subjective. It it has to have some type of shared experience to be funny. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized there was something about this video and, there, and there's kind of a classification, I don't know if it's a classification, but a, 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 a group of a, a, a type of humor that this fits within. And I don't want to say a genre because I don't think that's accurate, but the, but there's a type of humor that this falls under that, that that's popular and it's not the only kind out there. I think of like a Jerry Seinfeld. His humor is often kind of based on flipping a situation around in a way that you wouldn't naturally think. I'm reminded of his little stand-up bit of, you know, parachute, you know, uh, jumping out of an airplane. And he said, you know, it's crazy. You know, you jump out of an airplane, you got your helmet on, blah, blah, blah. And he he made this kind of funny observations, observational humor. He said, look, uh, when you jump out of an airplane at thousands of feet, you're not wearing the helmet, the helmet's wearing you. You know, let's face it. If your parachute doesn't deploy and you hit the ground, that helmet's not going to save you. If anything, you're saving the helmet. The helmet will probably come away unbroken, but you, my friend, will be done. And, you know, that's a funny, that's funny. I think Seinfeld's got his kind of brand of humor. Back in the day, like in the old days, uh, they'd use humor uh, to kind of, I hate saying this phrase, I hate it, speak truth to power. (laughs) But they would, they would back in the day, you know, you had like the, the Catholic church was kind of running the show. I'm talking in the, you know, the, the 1600s, uh, 15, 1600s, they might do plays that made fun of the church. They made fun of the priests, not because they were against the faith, because the priests would get up there and preach against, um, immorality and drunkenness and acquisitiveness and so on. And they'd turn right around and do it. They would father children. They'd be drunk all the time. And they'd be taking people's properties. They'd be manipulating and conniving and, and enriching themselves. This this happened. It was a real thing. This isn't a knock on the church. It's just that this, there was a lot of abuse. There's a lot of corruption in the system. And so people would use humor to call that out. They couldn't necessarily rail against the Pope. You couldn't rail against the church aggressively. You might end up in, in chains and you don't want to get discommunicated because then excommunicated rather because then you'd end up in hell. So what would they do? They'd use humor. They'd use uh, plays and so on to mock, to point out the, the immorality and the hypocrisy. They do the same thing against the king, against the monarchy. They'd, do, they'd make fun of the different dukes and duchesses, the aristocrats, the lords, the ladies, and even the monarch at times. They, this, we used humor f- as a tool. I think the Steve Bruhl shtick and and stuff like it, Talladega Nights and so on, at the root of this, I mean, they're really good on one level, and this isn't the root. On one level, they're good at the aesthetic. They're very good at capturing a time. It's often very nostalgic. I think of uh, Talladega Nights. I think of Ron Burgundy. Again, both Will Ferrell vehicles here. Uh, The Steve Brule piece that I'm referring to, you know, go check it out. You can see it for yourself. Very nostalgic and on point, they do a great job of capturing the nostalgia, the essence of an era, and so I think on some level that just that's just like um, that just draws you in that's like that, that's just the bait that just that's the bait that just draws you in to the piece because you're like we, we're all nostalgic, we want to go back, we want to enjoy those times, even those of us that were never part of it. I would imagine most people that love Ron Burgundy never lived in San Diego in the 70s. But still, there's something about that aesthetic that we all love. And we know about that era that was a magical era. In some ways, it's a funny era. It's funny to look back at it, but it's a magical time. And we want a part of that. We're nostalgic for those better times. Supposedly better. So that's one thing they do really well, but that, I don't think that's the root of the humor. I think that's almost the bait that just hooks you. And that and it's a signal. It just lets you know what you're in for. It's like when they get that really nice um, period, you know, aesthetic, that era, then you're like, okay, I'm in. You'll notice these guys, they never do really old stuff that I can think of. I mean, maybe they do, but off the top of my head. it's all modern stuff. It's the seventies, it's the eighties, maybe the nineties, but they're doing stuff that's within living memory. So it's, it's popular, you know, pop culture. Yeah. There's, there was pop culture in the 1920s, but to you and I, that's, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like, we don't think of that as pop culture. There was stuff that was pop culture. There were popular songs on, on um, the wireless, on the radio uh, that was pop culture, but you know, for us, that's like, it's, it's more historical, but when you go to something in the seventies or eighties, that's, that's still popular. It's part of our popular collective living memory. The thing that I think animates that informs, I should say the, 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 the core of this kind of humor that in, I'll exp- expand this out a little bit is, is, is absurdity. It, it is the absurd. It's humor of the absurd. Or the absurd, uh, the idea being that that the everything's just absurd. The the Steve Brule character does things, not just in this show, but in, in his other bits that are just absurd. He'll he'll be reviewing, uh, like I said, like a seafood restaurant, and then go out back, and and start pulling rotting, discarded seafood from a dumpster. And then start eating it to to, to do a kind of uh, review so he can give you a food review and then when he starts to say "Oh i don 't feel so good," he'll take a plastic cup, bend over the dock, dip it in the salt water uh, right there at, at the at the seaside marina where this restaurant is, and guzzle it down, and then make this look on his face like he thinks he's about to die. But he has no understanding that he just that he did something that was completely dangerous. <laughs> That he's giving himself food poisoning. It, 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 there's an, a level of it, you could say, well, it's stupidity. It's not absurdity, but it's but it's this is humor of the absurd. Everything is absurd. This bag boy bit. Uh, it, you, you know, you've got this. It's kind of a silly setup, but the products that the that the company is selling, the the supermarket, they're pork cubes. These giant industrial, you know, cans. Industrial sized cans, tins, of of pork cubes, cubed pork. What is cubed pork? What is that? That's not even a thing. They're just selling different like horse meat and stuff in these giant cans. And everybody in the store, the shoppers, Steve Brule, they're all besotted with these giant cans. Like right there, okay, ha ha, giant cans. But Brule, he's got this crush on the checkout girl. He's too shy to talk to her. The supposedly hunky other bag boy, shelf stalker—he uh, he's the one that's always asking her out and she thinks he's cute, et cetera. Brule can never work up the courage to talk to her and ask her to go on a date, but he's convinced that if he can acquire enough of these large cans, if he can get these cans and have them stocked in his kitchen and he's dream, dreaming of himself with cupboards full of these these giant cans, that somehow this girl will find him attractive enough. He'll finally be man enough for her because he's got possession of all these giant cans of cubed pork and horse meat. I mean, if that's not absurd to you, I don't know what is. It's just, it's ridiculous. Now I'm not offended by this. I want to be clear. I'm not talking about this. Because, hey, we've got a problem in our culture. And if we don't stop this humor, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. I, I, I'm not, this is not a, this is not a rant against John C. Riley, his Steve Brule character, or any of this stuff, but I do want to talk about. It. I want to observe it because I do think there is something going on in our culture and our society that's noteworthy. I think it's just worthy of pointing out. When you talk about absurdity and you talk about the absurd, you ask yourself the question: Well, how do we get there? I mean, and I think you know you could do uh, an essay on this. Well, why is a culture do we think the absurd is funny? I think that's a good question to ask, honestly, because if you if you take this kind of humor and you say, well, take this 100 years back, if you took this kind of absurdist approach to humor in comedy and you put together a performance that's similar to the Steve Brule, obviously they didn't have supermarkets. Uh, 100, 200 years ago, like we have now. And they don't, they don't know about the 80s and that kind of nostalgia. But let's say you did something 100, 200 years ago that was based on absurdity. I don't know that the audience just automatically would just start laughing. That would oh, we're in for a treat. I don't think the humor of that era was rooted in the absurd. There's something about this absurdity that is unique to our time. And I don't mean just this very day, meaning the last, I've noticed last five days, last five years, I'm just saying this is a growing thing, but I think it is unique to our time. And I think this says something about us. You know, there's a parallel, it's interesting, and I've learned this recently, I didn't know this, but uh, psychiatrists and psychologists have been observing through the 1900s and into the 2000s that the psychological problems that they encounter change over time meaning back during Jung's time, uh, Carl Jung and so on, they were dealing with different kinds of problems than psychologists and psychiatrists today. Uh, Specifically back in Jung's time, uh, Jung, uh, they were dealing with neuroses, things like compulsive behaviors, obsessive hand-washing and and, uh, fixations where people would get obsessed and, and, and compulsive and and the thinking behind this is um, that our neuroses and our psychological problems are a manifestation of the values and the themes and the forces of an era. And what happened in the 50s is that psychologists and psychiatrists started recognizing that the things... That the older psychologists and psychiatrists were dealing with. A lot of the literature was written on, a lot of the research was done. Those things are not showing up in our offices as much as they used to be. The younger guys are saying, Yeah, it's different. Like we were trained under these things, but I'm not seeing people with those issues to the degree that I was trained to focus on them. I'm seeing people with other issues that I haven't really been equipped to deal with. This is like in the 50s, they were recognizing this fifties, sixties, and seventies. Interestingly, just as a side note, and I'll, and I'll do something on this uh, at some point, it, it seems like they went from these compulsive behaviors, this obsessive compulsive type behavior set, and I'm not going to get into why that was what it was. And they started to see that fade away, but it was replaced by narcissistic issues. Surprising, huh? <laughs> that, uh, that in our day and age, that narcissism became the the main issue. Now, I don't mean just narcissism, but but psychological, psycho, psychotic issues around narcissism as the root versus these obsessive compulsive behaviors in the past. Now I bring that up n- not to talk about psychology or psychiatry, but to say that if we can say that the values the themes the forces of an era can inform our psychoses and our obsessions and our problems i think it's safe to say that it will they will probably also inform our humor i think it's safe to say that <laughs> So I think when we look at the humor and the types of humor and specifically this uh, absurdist approach to comedy, we can say, well, there's something underneath that informs that. There's something that, that, that makes that funny to us, whereas it wouldn't necessarily be funny to a previous generation and it may not be funny to subsequent generations. During the Enlightenment, the thinkers of the day the philosophers the scientists the the essay writers and 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 the prominent people of that era they they embraced this concept or a handful of concepts that that the material world around us can be known it can be known through logic and reason it can be known through empiricism it can be measured it can be quantified it can be grasped that the human mind is capable of grasping the world that it finds itself in. And then it would grasp it, not through magic, not through some spiritual revelation, but it would do it through scientific method. It would do it through the the mental powers of reason and logic. That opened a door to the world we live in today. That was the beginning of liberalism. I don't mean Democrats versus Republicans. I don't mean leftist ideology. I mean liberalism, meaning that the Enlightenment liberalized the human experience. It it created a level of independence and freedom for human beings that had been unheard of. Now, with that came some amazing things, but with that also came some bad things. For someone to say the Enlightenment is only good or to say it was only bad is just foolish. We have to get past this kind of all or nothing mentality. I I don't like, well, let's live in the gray. Everything you can't know, it's all gray. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the Enlightenment brought some amazing things. Free markets, free people, democracies, republics, uh, capitalism, uh, increasing wealth, the medical system that we have now, the discoveries of science, the technology that we all enjoy, the technologies, plural. I mean, you know, we've, we've increased the lifespan of a human being dramatically. We've reduced and alleviated poverty and hunger on levels that could have never been imagined before the enlightenment. That is an amazing thing. Those are amazing things. At the same time, we've destroyed our communities. We've, we've, uh, really dehumanized ourselves, and and we're dealing with some really chronic, deep issues that we haven't figured out yet. We don't have answers for. We become uh, we we've stripped ourselves of our spirituality. We've broken our families. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff with some problems. Well, let's not get into all that. But but I want to point out that the Enlightenment was a thing that happened. This was a turning point in Western society and human history. At the same time, or very quickly thereafter, there was a group that that had, in Germany mainly, of philosophers that had a counter-enlightenment, meaning they saw the enlightenment and they said, we're a little concerned because if you're going to now make the world all material and make it all measurable, well, what happens to God? What happens to faith? If everything is so measurable, well, you can't measure God. Does that mean now that, that God's out of the picture? So we've got to push back against this. And people like... Immanuel Kant and eventually uh, George Hegel and others were part of this counter-enlightenment. And, and this pushback and, the, and what they were exploring was, is there a way to still have scientific method and so on, but leave room for the irrational, leave room for kind of unknowable, and if we can do that, then we can enjoy our science and the things it does for us, but at the same time, we can still embrace God. I think this was a flawed attempt. And if you're a listener of any time, you know that I'm a Christian. I'm I'm I believe in God. So so I'm not over here saying, you know, that uh I'm an atheist, I'm a materialist only. So, I embrace the Enlightenment. I, I am saying that I think it was a misguided attempt uh, by human beings to try to fix something that wasn't really broken. <laughs> and in doing so, they actually broke it more. I'm going to jump forward. So, what ends up happening is when you try to make room for irrationality, you go hundreds of years forward with multiple thinkers, and you get to people like Heydinger, you get to people like Marcuse, and all these other philosophers, and so on. And you end up with this idea that life is absurd. This is one of the tenets of postmodernism. That life is full of conflict. That the, the conflict means nothing. There's no meaning to life. There's no deeper moral set of truths. There is no real truth. There's no reason. There's no logic. It is just irrationality. And absurdity, that life is absurd, that has no meaning. It's a very hopeless philosophy, quite frankly. It's devoid of any hope. There's no future when life is hopeless, when it's absurd, when your feelings of depression and frustration and sadness don't have a meaning, when they're actually, when they're actually the fruit of living in an absurd universe. I guess, I guess Heidegger was big on this. Like, you know, if you, if you're experiencing angst and depression and sadness, well, that's actually, that's good. That's, that's your inner person recognizing the fact that, that it's all absurd and pointless. But, but this is, this is a lot of the root thinking of postmodernism, that there is no reality. There's only my reality versus your reality. There's no truth. I make up my own truth. Uh, that we need to be, it's about groups of people, collective identities, as opposed to individual identities, blah, 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 blah. But essentially, it leads to to this concept of absurdity. And I think this is where we come to, a, to, to humor, where, where we laugh at the absurd. There's nothing else. There's no deeper truth. There's no purpose to the humor. There's no greater good. Not that everything always has to have a greater good. But it's not rooted in anything. It's just absurd. It's silly, and I think sometimes our desire uh, to to kind of laugh at this stuff is almost us whistling as we go past the graveyard. <laughs> I think this is on a subconscious level. Now I'm not pointing a finger again at Riley. I'm not saying, and he's guilty of this. I, I this is not, anyways, guilty. We are all a part of our culture. We're all, all a part of our age. And the fact of the matter is, I'm not saying that this isn't funny. You know, when I sat there and asked myself, why am I laughing at this? There was part of me just said, I think I'm just conditioned. I see this aesthetic. I see this 1970s, 1980s sitcom shtick. And I go, oh, the nostalgia part of me, again, it's just the hook. I'm in. You got me. But as I'm watching this, and as I'm watching the bag boy awkwardly try to talk to the girl, you know, or trip over as he's mopping and and, and deliver some silly, you know, awkward uh, one-liner, so that they can run the laugh track. Clearly, they're just ripping off the old sitcoms, and and they're doing it heavy-handedly. And I'm going to laugh. It's not really funny. I, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't laugh at it. I'm not saying that I realized it and now. I refuse to enjoy it. I'm just saying there's nothing really funny about that. It, it just, it just hits some notes that we have been immersed in to resonate with. It hits some notes that we resonate with and that's okay. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think that's an indictment of any type, but it did cause me to ask the question, what is at the root of this? And at the root is this idea of absurdity. And when I look at the world around me and I look at this postmodernism and I look at this concept of life has no meaning. It is absurd. Well, that kind of goes to this idea that that, that the deeper themes and forces of an era of a generation informs its humor as well as its psychoses. We're narcissistic. We are a narcissistic culture. Fight me on that one. I dare you. (laughs) We're a bunch of narcissists that think that life is absurd. And so all we have left is what? Well, we've got this kind of self-knowing wink-wink nostalgia and silliness. Is that a bad thing? I think it's too bad. I mean, I I don't think it's bad in the sense of like, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, we are, but I don't think that's why, (laughs) but it's just very interesting to me. So I bring all this up. I'm just be curious as you go about your life over the next handful of weeks, you know, if you've listened this far and take this conversation and kind of, Keep it in the back of your mind as you're coming across humor, as you're coming across different maybe movies, et cetera, sitcoms, TV shows. I'd be curious to know what you think, you know, and, and, and I'd love for you to push back. If you say, Mike, you, you've totally missed it. Here's why this is funny. This is what you're getting wrong. Hit me with that. I'd love to hear it. I mean, you know, I'm here putting this together. I love doing it. I love seeing the audience grow, but I really like it when you guys reach out. It just means a lot to me. If you want to get in touch with me, here's what you do. You go back to that website. You go to MikeGastin.com. It's uh, M-I-K-E-G-A-S-T-I-N.com. On the homepage, there's a contact form. Just shoot, me a, just shoot me an email. You can use that form to hit me up. Uh, there's also a contact page. Just go to the, the uh, menu and you can find that. You can also on the homepage sign up for my newsletter. I do send something out every once in a blue moon. No spam uh, or triple your money back. But yeah, sign up. But hit me up. I'd love to know what you think. You'd also get me on LinkedIn. You can probably hit me on Twitter. i check that from time to time, not often. But I'd love to know what you think. I just think that this absurdist humor uh, is growing in popularity. I think it's going to continue to grow. And I think, you know, it's going to get darker over time just because I think that things are difficult. Where do you hang your hat? You do see humor that is politically oriented. You see each side trying to take the mickey out of each other things like memes and so on. That's very powerful. I love seeing that stuff. I think that's a great use. And I, I love seeing a guy like Dave Chappelle uh, stand up. I mean, Chappelle, y- you know, he uses humor to speak the truth in in awkward truths. I mean, and he doesn't always come down on one side or the other. You know, he'll talk about racial inequities. He'll talk about uh, the hypocrisy of one side or the other. He'll talk about the ridiculousness of, of, of certain ideas played out in society you know he he's not afraid to talk about taboo topics and he uses humor in a very biting but also funny way to tell you the truth so on one hand you've got a guy like jerry seinfeld who's an observational uh humorist he'll kind of take an observation and twist it on its head he'll see it a different way and when he shows you that way it makes you laugh uh, on another level you 've got a guy like Chappelle who uses humor to tell the truth in very powerful ways. He ends up pissing off a lot of people. a lot of people over the last year or so were angry at Chappelle's last bit uh, so so that's that 's I love seeing that. I love that I respect Chappelle for that you know You, you see some people using humor for their own political gain. I, I look at guys like John Oliver and the whole host of these like you know humorous political commentators. You know, often they're just like left wingers that have an axe to grind, and they just want to mock their opponents, and, and that's fine. That's what humor's for. I mean, they're very successful. I hate them for it, but they're very successful. But I listen to a, a John Oliver, and I just I want to punch him in the mouth. He's so strident, and he's so he, he's so harsh to his credit uh, to the people that he's criticizing. It's like there's no intellectual honesty there. He's just trying to use humor to grind down the other side. Okay, that's a thing. Uh, and you'll see YouTubers using humor uh just to try to gain an audience. The interesting thing about John Riley and a lot of the characters that he portrays and especially Steve Brule, and also Will Ferrell and his humor and some of these others it really is rooted in a level of absurdity. I don't think that these comedians are up to anything nefarious. I don't think they're trying to make a statement. Now I could be wrong. Maybe I'm, you know, get to talk to Riley someday and he says, "Oh yeah, I Total postmodernist. I think everything's absurd, and so my humor—this is my art. You know, I'm out there to portray uh, this this hilariousness. I don't think that's the case. I think in this narcissistic, absurd world, he's reflecting back. He's acting as a mirror for us. He's just reflecting back uh, what we want to see, which is ourselves. We want that nostalgia, and 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 we want to see—you know—we want a good laugh but we're really looking for ourselves to be stroked. There's something very self... It's very reassuring. It's comforting, that nostalgia, when you watch this. It kind of brings you back, and and it's, it's more about me and my feelings as I watch this than it is John's work. And I find very interesting. When I watch Chappelle... He sometimes pisses me off. Sometimes he makes me snort, laugh so hard. Sometimes he makes me uncomfortable. Sometimes I feel a little convicted. And sometimes I feel righteous. Like, yeah, you tell him. But but he's he's you know manipulating me. He's making me feel various ways based on the truth that he's pushing or attempting to push. I don't watch Chappelle for me. I watch Chappelle for Chappelle, but when you watch Uh, something like this bag boy you're really watching it for yourself it's kind of a mirror that you can look into and have yourself reflected back at you and and, uh, that is the void I guess of the absurd so I would love to know what you think about this guys make sure to check it out you can get it in the show notes mikegaston.com forward slash the currency 086 hit me up with your thoughts I hope that you found this interesting I hope that you found it useful and I hope that you never forget kids I love you all Thanks for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode.